0: So, this lecture is on absurdism. So, what do we know about absurdism? Well, many things. In philosophy, and this will be read, readily available to you, in philosophy, the absurd refers to the conflict between the human tendency to seek inherent value and meaning in life and the human inability to find any in a purposeless meaningless, or chaotic and irrational universe. The absurd arises by the contradictory nature of the two existing simultaneously. Human life, therefore, is seen as absurd, fundamentally, caught in repetitious behavior, caught in patterns that can never be surmounted. The human condition, the human existence, is an absurd one. Philosophically, absurdism shares a lot with existentialism, I think, uh, and nihilism. Uh, so Kierkegaard, the 19th century philosopher, uh, I guess is the the person who came up with the idea of absurdism as we know it uh, through developing his existentialist philosophy. Camus, Albert Camus, uh, famously known for his essay and many other things, but his essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, uh, you can sort of see Camus as somebody who exemplifies uh, in his writings the philosophical line of thought. It has to do with the person that's, you know, Works and works and works never reaches their goal. Works and works and worst, and their life is futile. So a kind of, um, perhaps, <laughs> realistic, uh, realistic view of life, um, a kind of view of life that embraces the absurdity of the human condition. Uh, it's one of the reasons that Samuel Beckett's work falls into this category, often because he highlighted that, right, in plays like Waiting for Godot, Happy Days, Endgame, and Rockabye, and many others. And in fact, uh, these days, in the world of theater and digital theater and hybrid theater and theater film and any word you want to call it, the performative mediums, <laughs> in the performative mediums and people writing in the performative mediums, I think there's a discussion. Well, there is. I'm not thinking there is a discussion in the field around what is the appropriate response to the volatile uh, global situation that the world is in. The world and its citizens, I should say, and that situation being any number of things, but but one of them being the pandemic, and the other being. The increasing wealth gap—that uh, uh, seems to be exponential, um, market-driven, uh, uh, systemic, and environmental racism—and you know, and just you've got climate change. I mean, it's like the list is is kind of never-ending uh, of the fault lines that have been exposed during the pandemic. And I think that in the theater world. Now, the world of performance, there has been uh, discussion around what will be the forms in writing that people will want to make uh, as a result of this time or during this time. And absurdism seems to be the one that's winning right now. So, so uh, not melodrama, not realism, <laughs> not tragedy, but absurdism. In fact... Uh, a couple of literary managers uh, have been predicting that what, what the field will probably see in the next, if we make it, but in the next five to 10 years is a lot of absurdist plays. Sort of like Beckett's Happy Days plays about people being stuck and their worlds, trying to get out, not able to get out, uh, uh, embracing the absurdity of their condition, railing against it, but kind of in a bitter and comic way. Um, that's you know, a predicament, a prediction, I should say, that's happening in the field. Who knows? Who knows? I do think that it's a mode of writing and a worldview. Attached to that writing, that seems conducive to dealing with catastrophe, right? Uh, so if you think about Beckett when he wrote Waiting for Godot, among many other things, but Godot specifically, because it sort of was a turning point for him as a writer, um, it was into relationship to catastrophe. He was uh, responding to the Second World War, uh, his feelings of Failure, in a way, of of not being able to do anything. Uh, Of being kind of a writer stuck in a room. Uh, uh, Witnessing, you know, from outside his window, uh, the French resistance. Atrocity. But also at the same time. Feeling as if he really couldn't do anything, and but he could, right? He wrote. He wrote these amazing plays, so that have lasted uh, uh, longer than that war, uh, and and so and I think that the absurd position, from a writing perspective, is also one of survival, right? It's kind of a defense mechanism. This the absurdist position instead of. Uh, if you think about tragedy for a second in its most elemental sense, uh, not that it doesn't have dark humor, but I would say that by and large <laughs> in tragedy, uh, at its purest and most you know, kind of elemental, in tragedy, there's no room to be aware of how absurd things are right? Characters are thrown inexorably into their predicament, into their dilemma. And, and they, they don't even have time to, in a way, to, to have that reflective awareness around the absurd. So I think that the absurd also, <clears throat> excuse me, has a has a kind of, um, I was going to use the word privilege, but it has a sort of, a a bit of critical distance around it. Um, Seeing the tragic, but then being able to step away from it a bit, to comment on it a bit, right? So you're sort of like, oh, I'm in tragedy, but I'm going to step back and just note that how, that how, uh, how messed up the world is. So I think that's it's pro- probably one of the reasons why a lot of people in the field have been saying that that is the mode <clears throat> that will that will become prevalent uh, in writing. Who knows? Who knows? It's a prediction. Uh, I do think that there's the other mode that people have been talking about is uh, formally is the comic mode, specifically the screwball comedy, which is a very specific type of comedy that came out right after, uh, sort of in the middle of the Great Depression, uh, at least in terms of the United States. And, it, and it's, a, it's a very specific mode because it lives between it kind of lives in a in a suspended uh, <clears throat> social political climate. Screwball and screwball comedy. Uh, I know we're not talking about comedy right now, but but I think that screwball comedy has a relationship to the absurd, in that it it uses it it uses a bit of the absurd to cope with. Neurosis, anger, confusion—usually confusion. confusion. Screwball comedies are often about confusion, and usually around confusion around gender uh, and identity, uh, and they usually revolve around class disparities, um, and that that sort of combination, that cocktail of of uh, alliances. Between class, gender, and identity, and politics. Um, but going back to the absurd, uh, which predates uh, Screwball, um, what I will say about it is that it's a it's a it's a, it's a form of writing that embraces the meaninglessness, embraces and understands the meaninglessness, or at least it describes meaninglessness of existence. Um, it, it almost, this is going to be maybe controversial, I suppose, but I think that it's almost a form that negates a belief in a higher power. So waiting for God, waiting for God, right? If you look at the the word inside of Beckett's play, in a sense, I mean, you could say that that's a play that has great belief in a higher power. Here are these characters, they're waiting. They're waiting for a God to save them. Waiting for a God to tell them everything's going to be all right. They're waiting for a God to uh, make their lives better. Uh, and in fact, they just keep waiting because there is no God, right? So I think that one of that's one of the... Things that happen in absurdism is that the the spiritual and transcendent are questioned often uh, because the spiritual and transcendent rely on what's uh, intangible, what's you can't touch it. Right? So in a sense, it, it, it the absurdists philosophically are saying, why believe in a higher power or higher powers? Because we can't touch them. That's a, a strange position. That's an absurd position to be in. Um, and so I think that there's something around this form that also makes writers want to explore the relationship between uh, belief, religious belief, and uh, and maybe its constraints. Um, I think inside of absurdism, there is a a a movement of liberation. Uh, So so I think, is to parse through this just a little bit, but to say that in absurdism, I think the common, the common reflex around absurdism is that it's a, a form that shows people kind of struggling, embracing the, the existential crisis that they're in, laughing at it maybe, or being very self-aware around it, but being stuck, right? So the image of being stuck, like in Happy Days, Winnie uh, in that play by Beckett uh, is stuck, right? Like physically, like we see her stuck in a mound of dirt. Uh, in Endgame, you know, the characters are stuck in, their, in the paralysis of their emotions as metaphor. Uh, but on the other hand, just to, just to open this up a little bit, Maybe one of the things that makes absurdism so interesting is that it's also about freedom, right? It's also about, I know I'm stuck so I can be as free as I want. I can sort of transcend belief systems. I can, it doesn't matter. You know, the, 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 the self-aware shrug, which I think is emblematic of absurdism, Allows for an act of liberation to take place, you know, which I think may be understandable, right? So the world's on fire. Ah, I'm going to to follow my bliss. I'm going to, you know, uh, not not do things for others' approval, but actually finally do things for myself. You know, that that kind of mentality. And I don't mean that it has to be centered on a on the ego. I mean more that. There is something inside of the the shrug and nod and embrace of the existential, with all its uh, quandaries and um, agonies, real agonies, that also has very free in a way. It's a kind of acceptance, if you think of it from the point of view of like a La via negativa, right? The sort of negative space. It kind of opens up a negative space that that allows for freedom. Uh, so it's a very it's a very interesting because it, it, in a sense, in the absurdist world, um, there are no constraints. You know, there are no. Uh, uh, You construct your own meaning in other words you're not constrained by the meanings of others you're not constrained by the meanings of organized religion or morality or other forms of, of making meaning're you're, you're, you're in a uninhibited space uh, and you construct your own meaning so I think that I think what happens with absurdism often formally, from a dramatic perspective, is that I think sometimes people misread this form. It's I, I think it's one of the hardest forms to write in. Uh, and I think it's also a form that, on the surface, can... Um, can lead to what I call gimmicky writing. So writing that sort of uses the affect of absurdism without really understanding its power as a form and as a philosophy. Uh, And so it's just something to bear in mind, because I think that, so I'm going to say something that, again, may sound controversial, but I'm going to say it anyway. So there's a company, a very well-known company of new writing here in New York, called Club Thumb, Club Thumb. And a lot of tremendous and wonderful plays and playwrights have come out of Club Thumb. Uh, what the Constitution Means to Me, uh, Will Arbery's Play Plano, uh, Jacqueline Boghouses uh, Men on Boats, uh, just a ton of plays, you know, over 15 years or so. But the house style, so, so it's a company that has a, it's known for a certain kind of work. And the work tends to be, as they say, weird. 90 minutes, weird, uh, off-center, uh, with some linguistic and spatial quirkiness. Um, and that's all well and good. And I think that if one were to close one's eyes and think about the history of the work that, most of the work, not all of it, but most of the work that Globe Thumb has produced since it started as a company, you could say that it's absurdist work, that they've actually spent maybe 15 years pioneering a, new, a neo-absurdist movement of specifically uh, writing in the United States and specifically new writing in the United States um, centered in New York uh, but has influenced uh, writing outside of New York. Um, and, I, and I think that maybe a play that I can think about that from Club Thumb's uh, history that addresses this very well is Will Arbery's play Plano, uh, which actually, I think, captures the absurdist in a contemporary way um, pretty accurately. But... I'm getting ahead of myself, so let me just backtrack this a little bit to say, when did absurdist fiction begin? Right, so wh- where did this come from? <laughs> it's a post-war, it's a post-war uh, genre, uh, post World War II. Right, so it's sort of reaction to the tragedy and catastrophe of the Second World War, and it it sort of it kind of found its found its footing in the 1950s and 60s, where we also get, like, at that same time, the founding of the Off-Off-Broadway movement in New York, downtown theater. You get the beginning of what would become uh, an identifiable strand of the theatrical avant-garde in New York, so Mabu Mines, Worcester Group, these are all companies from the 70s, but their sort of foundations are coming from the absurdist movement that started in France and Germany but had an impact here in the U.S. So Edward Albee, Irene Fortnez, Sam Shepard, Terrence McNally, uh, John Quare. Are all in their own ways writing in the absurdist tradition. In the late eighties, nineties, nineteen nineties, you have a, a resurgence of the absurd drama, also centered around downtown New York theater, with the works of what were deemed the language, the language playwrights or the language school. I kind of hate that term, but I, but it is used. And so uh, you'll come across it, so I think I need to mention it. But um, So the language playwrights are Mack Wellman, Len Jenkins, uh, um, Matthew McGuire, Susan Laurie Parks comes out of the Language School of Playwrights, Eric N. They were all sort of making work around the same time, uh, Connie Congdon Paula Vogel is from that from the language school. I think she then kind of her work took a different turn. But they that was a group of writers. And they're they're also kind of neo-absurdists. I think Mac Woman is the most neo-absurdist of those writers. Um, but again, all of it stemming from a period in literature from the 1950s and 60s, prompted by post-war disillusionment. Right? So prompted by the catastrophe of the Second World War, the, the, the incredible and enormous moral quandary of that war, the amount of dead. And I think the, the, the reaction from a lot of writers was to, was to create a tradition of writing. Some of them with, with some intention and others fell into this as writers tend to do, kind of to try to understand the, co- the contemporary condition post the Second World War, which I think if you go back to the First World War, uh, where people thought in that war that that would never happen again. Do you know what I mean? So suddenly the idea that another world war had occurred uh, almost seemed unfathomable, and also of its scale and its magnitude. Uh, So this was a reaction, a reaction to the war. Um, There are all kinds of absurdist work. You see it in film, you see it in novels, you see it in plays, you see it in poetry usually focused on characters and situations that can't find purpose in life, right? That, that you know everything is sort of meaningless, and events call into question the certainty of concepts such as truth or value. So, so there, there are sort of interesting uh, contemporary works that do this. Uh, proponents of absurdism, I think quite consciously, actually. Uh, But Miranda July, uh, who is a performance artist and a filmmaker, I think her work in all of the realms that she works in is actually centered on the absurd. I think Charlie Kaufman, uh, for sure. Uh, In fact, you could take his body of work thus far and put it into the absurdist uh, category. You know, situations where people feel life is meaningless; they're chasing it, you know, and they they sort of, but they're thrown by shapes and patterns and society that keep reinforcing how meaningless uh, life is. Uh, I think that's coffin to a T, you know. Um, with all his daring and brilliance, Donald Glover goes about it in a different way in his work. Um, the, the railing against the meaningless of experience is uh, embedded inside of it is a is a railing against the meaningless of being uh, a black-figured political body uh, being forced to, or having to, or not not, not say forced to, but to some degree forced to navigate um, uh, White figured spaces, um, and so the reaction I think with Glover sometimes is to point out the meaninglessness of the and the futility of that kind of condition, right? A condition of actually not being entirely free, right? Not being free. That freedom has been dictated by others. Um, I think it's a really interesting way of thinking about absurdism in that light. Brandon Jacob Jenkins in his play Appropriate and also in his play An Octoroon, which is a riff on melodrama, uh, works also with the absurd. Jordan E. Cooper in his play Eight No More also does. Spike Lee, uh, not always, but I think sometimes in his work. His work is so interesting, Spike, because he, he's constantly shifting tones of registers in his uh, writing. But you can look at like, um, certainly aspects of bamboozled, do the right thing, Black Klansmen, all have elements of absurdism, in terms of tone. Uh, So what do I mean by that? Satire. Dark humor. Really dark humor. The notion of incongruity. Incongruous elements next to each other. The abasement of reason. So common sense falling out the window, right? Uh, Characters uh, flying in the face of common sense. Or sometimes common languages. Um, Characters that feel like they're nothing, right, or, or, or embody nothingness. Um, in Absurdist Theater, there's a focus on the experience of characters that find things, life irreconcilable and meaningless, um, struggling, but, you know... Uh, they're caught in the hamster wheel. I think that's sort of the element of absurdism, right? It's, it's characters, figures caught in the hamster wheel of existence, and and can't and can't sort of uh, rise above it. And so a lot of a lot of the absurdist work sort of deals with anxiety, right? It deals with anxiety, panic, angst, uh, rage. Um, uh, uh, there's a there's a yeah. There's a kind of. A, I'm thinking about Ionesco, for example, Ionesco and rhinoceros, or and even involved Sopranos, a kind of a, a heightened sense of anxiety uh, in the work, uh, political, I think, in Ionesco's work. A kind of raging against the machine, but doing it not through. Um, look world, this is what's happening. Although he is doing that, uh, Ionesco. But sort of doing it through really dark comedy and satire. Dr. Strangelove, famous example, famous satire in film, definitely absurdist. Uh, So, you know, there are a lot of examples about this this, uh, genre. Uh, It's a I think it's one of the trickiest genres. I know I said that before, but I really do think it's very, very tricky. Um, uh, it's often humorous, right? So, so I would say uh, it's, it, it, absurdist work tends to be funny. It tends to deal with the irrational. It deals usually with non sequiturs. It violates cause and effect. Right. So, if realism is essentially interested in cause and effect, cause and effect of consequences, absurdism throws that out the window. Right. Absurdism, you know, already kind of foundationally and philosophically believes there is no cause and effect. Things happen. It's all messed up. Um, and so, I think usually, though not always, but usually. And absurdist work, especially humor, in terms of humor, uh, expectations around cause and effect are violated. They're transgressed. There's also unpredictable juxtapositions, right? So non sequiturs, violation of causality, unpredictable juxtapositions. Uh, Monty Python, right? So Monty Python <laughs> reveling in the absurd, right? Um, kind of you know, the best of their sketches, that's exactly what they're doing. Uh, Even though there's a very strong uh, structural logic to their writing, uh, when they're at the top of their game, uh, the work is essentially absurdist, right? It's humorous, it's irrational, and it sort of mines the idea of the unpredictable, unpredictable juxtapositions and non sequiturs. To point to a worldview, Right, to point to a worldview, not just for its own sake, but to point to a worldview that is uh, calling attention to uh, the meaninglessness of life. Right, uh, But I think what's interesting about absurdism, because I think sometimes p- people look at it as a purely comic uh, form, is that it actually doesn't really, it's not comedy, strictly. It sits in between. It sits in between comedy and what I would call silliness, silliness and slapstick. Um, it's sort of right down the middle of that. And it's really a study of human behavior under either realistic or fantastical circumstances. Uh, and those circumstances seem to have no purpose, right? They seem to be the hamster wheel. Um, There's usually very little judgment. So writers that are writing absurdism usually are not judging their characters, um, or at least that's not the effect that the work has. Uh, the, The reader is asked to be in that position, to go, wait a minute, what's going on here, right? The reader is placed in the position of apprehending Often the moral of the story, what is you know, is not made clear. Um, although I would argue that in *Rhinoceros* by Ionesco, the moral is very clear. Um, but you know, it also could be misinterpreted. So, uh, but there is an ambiguity to absurdism, and I think that's why it's a slippery form. It's very ambiguous. Um, it usually doesn't have a conventional plot. So the notions about, oh, when people talk about rising action and climax and failing action and all those things, in absurdism, that tends not to happen. Things sort of operate a little bit differently. Um, and in fact, although I would argue against this, but People tend to say, "Well, in absurdism, plot and character and development don't 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 appear." Don't think that's true. I think they don't appear in ways that are expected, right? So conventionally expected. Um, on the one hand, you have *Bald Soprano*, which uh, absolutely, you know, uh, uh, conventional sense of plot development, and character, or or are not there. Um, But other things are happening in the structure. Um, There tends to be a kind of concentric circle structure in absurdist work, or a spiral. Uh, Or what I I call plateau structure, where, where it's there seems to be one, only like in Godot, a reference waiting for Godot because it's so obvious. Um, if you look at that play, beat by beat by beat, there seems to be nothing happening, right? You know, it's like characters spinning, kind of in repeat patterns that repeat, uh, and usually ending up back at the beginning of that pattern, right? But that's still a structure, right? It's just not—it's not rising. It's certainly not falling, right? Um, it's it's kind of built in concentrics. Um, it's a very um, idiosyncratic uh, form. So what I mean by that is that it's one where the writer, the writer's point of view. Uh, kind of dominates, which is why I think I thought about Charlie Kaufman in this, in this instance, because in Charlie's work, it really is about Charlie Kaufman. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's a there's an imprimatur of the writer's uh, sensibility. So Charlie Kaufman, Miranda July, is a kind of like, this is you know this is my worldview. Uh, which I think is, you know, there's a kind of strength to that. Uh, There's an ability to create a signature from a writer's perspective if you're drawn to absurdism. There's a, because it's sort of, I'm thinking about like somebody like Kurt Vonnegut in The World of Novels or Thomas Pynchon, also absurdist writers, Kafka, obviously, but when you think of those writers, there's a very strong lens, uh, and that lens sort of predominates. Um, you're not you're not necessarily falling into the characters. You're you're falling into kind of a lens by an author. Um, so there's an individuality to I think a lot of absurdist work. Uh, idiosyncratic, individual, incredibly subjective. Um, That can be very exciting. Um, So, you know, Cormac McCarthy, right? So Cormac McCarthy is an interesting person to think about in relationship to the absurd because Cormac's work is uh, ostensibly tragic on its surface, right? So uh, characters stranded on a road, Uh, the world is falling apart. Uh, they are trapped in there but they're trapped in a cycle. Uh, yeah in Cormac McCarthy's fiction there's a sense of the meaninglessness of life characters are up against. Uh, the Cohen brothers I think are interesting in this regard because I think they are their work is often absurdist um, kind of uh, openly and, and brazenly, so, so, O oh brother, where art thou? Raising Arizona, Big Lebowski, right? Very absurdist work, uh, but very much their point of view, right? That's what I mean about the strong stamp of the author in this kind of work, which is, I think, is a really interesting thing to consider. Uh, you know, it's what I'm saying by that is that it's also a lot of absurdist work is very political, right? So the politics of the absurd have to do, there's a kind of, if you think back to the origins of, of the, let's say the theater of the absurd for one thing, uh, coming, ab- coming of age, basically in France and Germany, basically in Europe, uh, in the late 50s, although there are writers in other countries that are working in this mode in reaction to the second world war. Uh, Embracing existentialism. Examining what happens when the loss of structures uh, occur. Thinking of, there's a Chilean playwright, contemporary, named Guillermo Calderón. I think Guillermo Calderón might be worth uh, looking up uh, because I think his work also falls into the absurdist category um and again sort of concentric circles tends to be the shape of the work rounded plays round plays that start and end in the same place uh, that we're watching the futility of existence roll by uh logical construction and argument fall away usually and there's a Prevalence or a kind of focus on the irrational, on the illogical, on silence, so the use of silence. So if you look at Pinter, Harold Pinter, the British playwright from the 50s and 60s into the 70s and beyond, he had a long career. Um, Pinter comes out of this tradition, right? So Pinter bridges the gap. He's sort of somebody that sort of took He's kind of writing in the absurdist tradition, so in plays like The Dumb Waiter, The Room, uh, even The Homecoming, Caretaker, but then kind of merging it with, uh, with realism, absurdist realism, in a way, is how I think about Pinter. Uh, but very much of the absurdist tradition, very much, especially the early career work. There's a the sense of the uncanny, the sense of things falling apart at any moment, the unstable ground might be a way to think about uh, absurdism. And also an emphasis on silence. I think one of the reasons I was thinking about Pinter is the, especially, like I said, the earlier career work of his, obsession with kind of silence, right? And, and how do we sit in silence and what does silence mean? And what's the, the end point of silence? Um, what I will say is that Martin Eslin, so I have to mention Martin because, you know, he's the one who coined the term absurdist theater. So, so often, I know I've said this before, but, you know, writers themselves, unless they're, they decide they are a movement, and name it so. Often are not the ones that identify these um, or brand, brand themselves in this way, right? So, um, you know, maybe the Dadaists and maybe the Surrealists did, but but by and large, it's usually other people that are kind of looking at patterns and shapes and going, "Aha, that's what this is," right? So, Martin Eslin, who is a critic. Eslin is spelled E S S L I N. So Martin Eslin in 1960 wrote an essay called The Theater of the Absurd. All right? And this is like the first time there's an acknowledged from from the point of view of the performative mediums an acknowledged categorization of this kind of work. So Beckett, UNESCO were the focuses of his um two of of the major focuses of his book. I mean, his essay. Sorry, it then became a book of his essay. Um, And he used a quote from Ionesco to describe what this kind of theater was. And Ionesco said, absurd is that which has no purpose, goal, or objective. Um, Which is really interesting. So they they tend to be plays that usually are about people's reaction to a world without meaning, plays where people are puppets, in a way, or controlled by outside forces. They're uh, invisible, strategic outside forces. Um, uh, They don't have a will of their own, right? They're they're sort of... So it's interesting, because I think on the one hand, it's a form... That, you, that, as I said earlier, feels like a form about freedom flying in the face of meaninglessness. On the other hand, especially a theater, uh, the way the, the initial wave of absurdism occurred, saw sort of characters, figures assailed by unknown forces, Invis- usually invisible, invisible forces that were preying on them. And not allowing them to be free. Uh, And so there's the tension in a lot of absurdist words comes from this. It comes from uh, what are these forces in the world that are not allowing this to happen? Allowing people to kind of find their freedom. Uh, And I use that word very expansively. Maybe I should say freedoms, right? Uh... And, and kind of using tactics and strategies, usually characters in absurdist plays are using strategies to to contemplate and deal with what feels uh, you know insurmountable in their lives. So a lot of absurdist plays, uh, as I said before, around comedy have a connection to vaudeville. They're, you know, there's like horrific and tragic images people sort of in hopeless situations, but there's a kind of like vaudevillian quality about it. And I think that when people talk about Samuel Beckett and his love of silent film comedy, um, you know, thinking about it that way can be really helpful. And that's why I think about Miranda July, right? Miranda is sort of working usually in her films with a almost silent film comedy uh, uh, lens, uh, mode, and positioning our characters kind of thrown about by circumstance, Um, there's a slapstick quality uh, that absurdism falls into. Also, it's a form where dialogue tends to, there's a lot of wordplay. Uh, gibberish, nonsense, made up words, uh, cliches, automa- almost automatic speech, um, plots that are expansive or circular. There's a parody of realism in absurdism, a parody against against uh, the notion of the well-made play. Uh, which is really interesting. So this is a quote from Eslin from his book, uh, the book that he ended up writing called Absurd Drama, which had started with that essay called Theater of the Absurd. The Theater of Absurd attacks the comfortable certainties of religious or political orthodoxy. It aims to shock its audience out of complacency, to bring it face-to-face with the harsh facts of the human situation as these writers see it. But the challenge behind this message is anything but one of despair. It is a challenge to accept, accept the human condition as it is, in all its mystery and ambiguity and absurdity, and to bear it with dignity and responsibility, because there are no easy solutions to the mystery of existence. People are alone in the world, and the world may be meaningless. So let's shed comforting illusions which may be painful, but let's leave them behind because that will give you a sense of freedom. The theater of the absurd does not provoke tears of despair, but the laughter of liberation, right? So this is Eslind, uh in his book, Absurd Drama, from 1965. Uh, and so I think that that spirit is alive in absurdism. Um, and I think... You know, as you sort of look at l- slightly later career writers, Tom Stoppard comes out of this tradition. Uh, especially if you look at his early work. So Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Uh, jumpers, travesties. A lot of that early career stuff of Stoppard's very much is living in the absurdist tradition. fornes uh, absolutely. I mean, she was writing during this time. She was incredibly impacted by Beckett, Um, you have some of Carol Churchill's work, Uh, not all of it, her work is so varied, but some of her work is actually absurdist. In fact, some of her late career work is kind of moving, you might say in a neo absurdist form. Uh, Her play Drunk Enough to Say I Love You, for example, comes to mind as sort of a different way of thinking about absurdist theater. Uh, so it's it's worth bearing in mind. There's also like writers like Fernando Arrabal in Spain, uh, whose work doesn't get done in the United States very often, but very interesting writer, kind of doing grotesque absurd, absurd theater uh, in a really interesting way. Uh, most absurd plays tend to have a mix of the tragic and comic, Again, they should sort have of fall down the middle, um, and I think that. Excuse me. Um, it's not completely tragic. There's a there's an element of comedy. Slicing through, the tragic experience. Um, I mentioned silent film. Um, there's also like a strand of. Um, this may seem like, I guess I'll mention Brecht. Um, Brecht is interesting because I think he doesn't technically fall under absurdist theater. Not really. Um, But some of his work has elements of it. Uh, Caucasian Chalk Circle, Mother Courage, the Good Person of Szechuan has elements. They all of these plays have elements of the absurd. He's in that generation, you know. He's writing at the same time as Beckett and Ionesco. So, so you know, he's a little bit. He sort of straddles time periods, but he's definitely kind of in in this in the mix. Um, so yeah, so I would I would say that. Uh, there's some of Beckett that falls into the absurd and worth thinking about that way. There's a wonderful Polish playwright, uh, and it, you look at the Eastern European tradition of playwriting, it's almost exclusively working within the absurd, uh, even to this day. Uh, in a way that I think in the United States, after The 50s and 60s, after that, it tends to fall away because realism kind of came back. Realism took over in the United States in terms of drama. Uh, And then you have a couple of outliers. You have a couple of people that are are not doing that uh, in the main Um, until you circle back to um, the language playwrights. And, and then you kind of, the the next generation that comes after the language playwrights, the ones that are influenced by Wellman and Jenkin and N, to some degree. Um, what I will say about, I was going to mention Eastern European writing. So uh, there's a Polish playwright named Stanislav Wikiewicz, uh, W-I-T-K-I-E-W-I. C. Z. Ukevich is a tremendous playwright. Really interesting. Really interested in the irrational. Uh, really grotesque writing. Almost bordering a theater of cruelty. Uh, but not quite. Um, really, really exciting playwright. And I think his work hardly ever gets done uh, in the United States. Uh, but very well well worth a look, actually, because uh, he's working in that tradition in a very heightened way, almost operatic uh, mode. Uh, you could look at, you know, sort of people that are bordering the absurd, right? So, bordering, kind of going right before the absurdism kicks off, like Brecht and Vitkevich. There's also Pirandello. Who's kind of in that mode, it was kind of like edging us to to the place where absurdism is gonna happen. Uh, there's often a lot of meta theatricality in absurdism. So role a lot of role play. I mean, just look at Rosencrantz and Gilbert during are dead, you know, a play about a play about a play. <laughs> people, you know, there's constant role play in that and a sort of freedom of that and kind of bustling up against the universe uh yeah. Uh the surrealist, the Dadaists are an influence on the absurd. Uh obviously they're much earlier uh historically. But there's there's a, a sort of strain of Dadaism and surrealism that falls into the absurd. Um and you know, and some people, like, yes, Ionesco was a friend of the Surrealists, uh, like Breton. Uh, Beckett translated a lot of Surrealist poems by Breton into English. So I think that there's a crossover between the Surrealists and the Absurdists, uh, which is why I think sometimes they get lumped together. Jean Paul Sartre, the philosopher, uh, was moving in those circles with the Absurdists. So Sartre ends up kind of falling into this as well. Uh, but Ionesco, uh hated Sartre uh, and, in fact, uh, wrote Rihanna Asurus as a criticism of conformity, conformity, whether it be Nazism or Communism or you know, any kind of ideological conformities Inesco uh, uh, was against um, in a kind of that fanatical, right? It's a fanatical conformity. Um, so so it's interesting. There's there's kind of tensions in the world of the absurd. And, and, I, and like I said, the writers themselves, I mean, I don't think Beckett, I'll have to reread some of his uh, treatises, but I don't think he ever himself said, I write Theater of the Absurd. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think you have, just have to parse through this very carefully. Um, Genet, Jean Genet um, in France, uh, absolutely an absurdist writer. Uh, you see the influence, so I would say, like somebody like Jeremy O. Harris in his play, Slave Play and even in his play, Daddy. Uh, but slave play, a little bit more than Daddy, definitely working in the absurdist tradition. It's uh, almost co- self-consciously. Uh, uh, and so, and you see from slave play a kind of connection to the rational. The action is not causal necessarily, though it is historically, right? In terms of the frame of that play. But in terms of what happens in the play, there's a there's constant rupture. There's constant rupture, and characters are caught uh, in wheels of existence, right, that they can't break through, but are trying to break through. And it depends how you interpret that play. It has so many layers. Uh, But he's definitely working uh, in kind of the bad, absurdist form uh, to some degree. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's so many writers. I'll mention some plays, uh, just to kind of put those in the mix, that vary, I think, in terms of tone and style, so it's worth thinking about. Also, in terms of history, historically, in terms of theater, Jean Genet's The Maids, Le Bon, it premiered in 1947. Um, pretty scandalous play. That play is terrifying. Uh, uh, Ionesco's Bald Soprano, of course, has uh, played The Chairs. Beckett's Godot, 1953. Genet's The Balcony, 1957. They mention The Balcony because Slave Play, Jeremy O. Harris's Slave Play, the riff on Genet's The Balcony. So if you know The Balcony, (laughs) written in 1957, and you see Slave Play, they're kind of mirror plays of each other. Uh, And, you know, maybe someone will write, or maybe someone is writing their treatise on this. Um, Pinter's Play, The Birthday Party, 1958. Edward Albee's play, The Zoo Story, 1959. All right, so we're looking at mid, late, you know, right as post war and into kind of the tail end of the 50s. You have Craps Last Tape in 1959. Um, Rhinoceros by UNESCO is 1959. Happy Days by Beckett is 1961. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? 1962. And it's interesting because Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is an absurdist play, uh, uh, but often viewed through the lens of realism, which I think is fascinating. Um, Pinter's play The Homecoming, in 1965. Uh, Rosencrantz and Guildlestone, which I mentioned, it is 1966. Uh, yeah, so, so, so in thinking about, like, I know I mentioned briefly some people that are working in this mode, so a lot of the writers coming through Club Thumb are working in this mode. Early career, Susan Laurie Parks, absolutely working in the absurdist realm. If you look at the Death of the Last Black Man and the whole entire world and her plays, The America play, for example. Elements of Top Dog Underdog have the absurd in them. Uh Antoinette Wandu's play, Passover, is um, referencing Godot uh, and and using a kind of absurdist lens. Um, Martin McDonough. Martin McDonough, for for sure, especially in his play, The Pillow Man, um, working with absurdism, So those are some writers that are that are sort of working in this realm. Um, there's usually the element of the incomprehensible and in absurdism uh, or the inadequacy of language. Um, Anne Washburn is an interesting writer in this realm because I think that she straddles elements of absurdism and realism in her work. But if you look at Mr. Burns, that play kind of, starts in a kind of realism of sorts and kind of just starts the motor of that play changes. And, and we're suddenly entering the absurd, right. Uh, pretty, pretty fully on, um, she a play called the internationalist very much an absurdist play. Uh, yeah. So I'm just trying to think of, of plays that, that, you know, the pieces that, that sort of work in this realm. Um, there's a sense of the inevitable in this form. Uh, so I think that's worth thinking about. What is inevitable? And characters sort of reacting to the inevitable. Uh, and characters, you know, when Eslin wrote his book on the theater of the absurd and historically uh, coined the term and and I guess, you know, from we have we have a great debt to Eslin, but he was thinking about this idea of things uh, not being harmonious, right? So things sort of being out of joint, right? The world is out of joint, and the plays are out of joint with the world. Um, But it's also looking at worlds that are cut off from, as I said earlier, from religion, from metaphysics, from the transcendental, uh, uh, barren, barren worlds, barren, hopeless, raging against, hopelessness. Uh, That's sort of the essence of absurd work. Um, Characters tend to be lost, floating around. The world doesn't understand them. Uh, Sometimes they're like machines uh, stuck, you know, in in patterns of language and behavior and they can't uh, uh, go past that. Uh, absurdist plays tend to use um, archetypes and stereotype. Characters that are stereotypes or archetypes. Flat characters. Um, stock characters. Uh, so the idea of the rounded character in absurdism doesn't really... Things start to change, I think, later. But, but by and large, it's a, it's a flatter conception of character. Um, closer to, I think, uh, commedia, right? So in commedia, you just have your stock roles and people play them, right? And they slot—they're slotted into them. Uh, and there's a kind of comfort to that from an audience perspective. You sort of know what you're getting. Um, that's why I think Ain't No Mo, uh, Jordan E. Cooper's play, and George Wolfe's play, *The Colored Museum*, right? Those plays are mirrors of each other, consciously from Jordan's part in *Ain't No Mo*. Uh, both plays that deal with stereotypes, right? Stereotypes. Um, to kind of look at the social condition, right? To look at the social condition that these characters are in. Often, absurdist plays deal with people in crisis. Crisis mode. The world around them is falling apart. They're in crisis. Characters are usually trapped. So that thing of characters being stuck, characters are trapped in something sometimes in a space they can't leave, sometimes in their own bodies, um, metaphorically. Um, There's usually like outside forces that are uh, evil or menacing or damaging, that are kind of hovering around the environment or actually working into the environment. Uh, There's a sense of chaos, um, you know, where logic has sort of been abandoned where science has been abandoned. So I think that you know, which is why I think I think that you know during this time, uh, during the global pandemic and during time of Brexit and Trump, absurdism seems like the form, right? Because we're in a we're in a time when science, you know, science is being. The reality show that we're seeing is uh, uh, characters that are not characters; they happen to be real people. Um, are negating science and are and are living in an absurd universe. They're creating an absurd universe for us to witness. So, and the dangers of that, right? The dangers of that. So, the fascism authoritarianism thrives in situations where uh, the hopelessness of existence. Is uh, agitated and instigated, so which I think is an interesting place for absurdism, uh, and how it links to the political, right? So because I think that sometimes people look at theater of the Absurd or films of the absurd, and it's like, oh, you know, they're they're in another reality and uh, nothing matters and it's all silly, or um, but there there's actually a very strong, also political, not always. Uh, mind you, but often there's a strong political mode to absurdist work, right? It's kind of reacting to, it's showing, I'm thinking about Dr. Strangelove, right? It's showing kind of, this is what can happen. This is what can happen uh, when, when things fall apart, right? Uh, Mr. Burns uh, does that uh, in a way that's really interesting. Um, so yeah, and Rhinoceros does that for sure, right? It's a call, it's a call to action. So if you read the reviews of Rhinoceros when it was done, when it was first done in New York, uh, a thousand, you know, not a thousand years ago, um, uh, on Broadway, uh, the critic, the critical reviews, it's great to look at what critics were saying at the time. Um, audiences walked out of that play, caught Ki- like kind of as if they'd been like hit you know like start struck you know kind of like in a daze like they didn't just know what hit them right the ferocity of the play like rhinoceros uh going this is who we are we are caving in we're this is what happened when you follow ideologies right so and if you look at the current if you look at the world you know many parts of the world but if you look at even what's happening in the United States, where you see the how reality gets twisted to the point where you know you have cults and sex sort of occur that that um are ne- negate common sense, negate uh, what what is known as the real right. the, the sort of embrace for ide- ideological reasons, an alternate universe. So suddenly you have the notion of fake news, right? And that suddenly that can be manipulated um, to the point where uh, the sense of reality gets distorted, um, the sense of the terrain gets shifted to such a degree. And when that happens, I think uh, manipulation starts to occur, right? The this, this spin, right? So this spin that occurs uh, in, an, in a like, real-life absurdist world, right? Not in a theater piece, not in a film, but a real-life absurdist world. Um, so I think, it, I think that's one of the reasons why people in the field are talking about absurdism as having a comeback, because uh, it seems like the logical, perhaps the logical, I'm not sure it's the only logical response, but, but it certainly is a mirror, right? A mirror to what's happening uh, in the world and pointing it out. Um, uh, David, uh, Henry Wong, his play Chinglish is an absurdist play. His play Yellow Face is an absurdist play. Uh, so, and, and you get a strain of writing. So you've got, uh, the work of the comedy troupe Culture Clash falls into this category. You start to get, um, Work that's that's sort of doing. So when I think of culture clash, I think if you don't know them, look them up. They're kind of very important, very interesting. West Coast uh, based comedy troupe, uh, rising out of the Chicano uh, liberation movement on the West Coast. Um, and there's a there's a sort of again, a kind of rage against the machine, but doing it through slapstick means uh, for, for for effect. Um, I was thinking about um, Will Eno's work, because Will Eno is a protégé of Edward Albee, a contemporary writer, so I think Will sort of falls into the absurd. And sometimes he embraces it fully, and sometimes he's kind of skirts into other realms, but Certainly a play like The Realistic Joneses, Tom Paine Based on Nothing, uh, Title Indeed, uh, The Flu Season, definitely working in the absurdist tradition. Jenny Schwartz, uh, her play God's Ear, uh, also working in this tradition. Uh, There's a, in fact, Jenny Schwartz is sort of a great example of her tourism, if you don't know her work. uh, not, she's very interested in nonsense language and in kind of language that's almost Baroque and it's nonsense. Um, it's not, it's not every day, you know, it's not believable in the sense of, um, that's how people talk down the street. Like she's really heightening language, using cliches, kind of uh, deconstructing their thought as they're speaking it. Like very interesting the language in Absurdist Plays tends to be rhythmical and very musical. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why it lends itself to, to the comedic and the playful in that regard. In The Ball Soprano, which was inspired by a language book in which characters would exchange empty cliches, uh, you know, language becomes a vaudeville, right? It becomes a tool, a mechanism, it's not there to make meaning. It's there to kind of create shapes, um, and and not communicate anything. It's sort of a play about going against communication, right? It's sort of highlighting how people don't communicate, um, purpose, purposefully elliptical, right? I think this is something to think about when you look at the absurdism, um, devaluing language. Um, language gets stripped of its meanings. Um, and as a tactic, right? As a tactic to highlight what happens when that happens is that we start to listen to where can meaning be found, right? So I think there's always a a, a desire, you know, a desire to understand within absurdism uh, by using cliché, by using deconstructed language. There's the operative thing is to go beyond that. Um, Uh, Sometimes there's the supernatural and absurdism, not always, but sometimes uh, the laws of physics shift, Uh, realities start to blur. In Stoppard's play, Tom Stoppard's play, Travesties, which is an early career play of his, but a very interesting play. uh, It almost feels like what I call a graduate school play, like he's putting in. Like, everything he knows in that play. Every, all his research, like, all, his, all, this, all the writers he loves. Um, but a very, very interesting play about consciousness. Um, he kind of merges that with uh, the plot of The Importance of Being Earnest. And uh, kind of smacks, him, smacks kind of like James Joyce and the Dadaists and Wild all together. Uh, fascinating play, Travis we don't know it. There's also the element of the cyclical as I mentioned before, sort of the repetition in absurdist in absurdist works, worth checking out. A lot of a lot of Eastern European theater still to this day uh, hinges on the absurd as a root theatrically. Um, uh, if you look at some of the theater of the post-dramatic tradition in Germany. Also, is working in the absurd tradition, or using some of that for sure. Um, it's a you know, it's a it's a fascinating tradition. Um, uh, I know we're almost over an hour, so I'm not going to prattle on anymore. But um, it's a you know, I've always thought of it as a very slippery form. It's it's very hard to write <coughs> absurdist work. Uh, I think on the, like I said on the surface it seems very very easy, but but it's really about about wrestling with the human condition and the hopelessness of the human condition and in that sense it's like a a form that is um, worthy of course and and I guess you know in looking at drama and being a writer you know it's just another tool right you're going well this could be an absurdist play what would that look like. Um, at the end of the day, I think, you know, there are conscious gestures we use as writers, and then there's unconscious gestures that we use. But certainly, you know, having it in our purview, I would say an exercise that, that I think might be worth worth doing is to think about writing five-minute versions of all of these kind of forms, right? The five-minute melodrama, five-minute realistic play, five-minute tragedy, the five-minute... You know what I mean? Just as a, just a kind of... Uh to have under your belt as a writer, uh, to see if you can do it for one thing. Uh, but also there's something interesting about what's the most elegant way of approaching kind of the foundations of some of these forms that are, you know complicated and dense and approach and again, they've been created through writers usually, and thinkers and poets and painters and artists and philosophers, uh, trying to make sense of the world, trying to make meaning, and and doing it sometimes by not making meaning, All right? So uh, by making a different kind of meaning with absurdist work. Um, Celine Song uh, is a playwright that you might know. Uh, her play *Antlings* has a heavy, heavy. Uh, it's almost. It's not completely absurd, but it's pretty close. <laughs> Pretty close to, in terms of what she's doing. Formally, in that play, it very much lives in various levels of the absurd. Uh, Taylor Mac, um, in some of his, in some of their work, sorry, in some of their work uh, is also playing with very much with elements of the absurd as a tactic. Right, it's a political tactic, strategic tactic, tra- tactic as a writer. Um, so, you know, I would say just dive in, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a form that, you know, because it's so close to comedy, uh, going full into comedy, you, you know, I think there'll be a lot of overlap. Uh, and so, so worth looking as also a form that kind of bridges forms, right? It sort of exists between tragedy and comedy, um, and in so doing, um, it shares elements of both. So, so that's uh, just a little, some thoughts on absurdism and where it came from and where we may, we may be in a second wave, <laughs> second wave of absurdist theater um, as we speak.